0: good morning everyone. Um, We're going to start this morning with a little object lesson to uh, do something a little bit different today. Hopefully this will help illustrate our sermon. So I'm going to need two volunteers this morning. Um, So two volunteers maybe whose parents don't mind their kids coming forward and helping with us. Do you want to come up and maybe? Okay we got one and then can I just get one more volunteer over here? Jake. Okay great perfect. Excellent. So come around here. This is great. Do you guys like whipped cream? No? <laughs> You're not going to like this one. Then. Do you like whipped cream? Yep. Yeah. How do you not like whipped cream? Gosh, I'm sorry. You're missing out. Uh, in heaven, you will love whipped cream. <laughs> the resurrected body. <laughs> All will be made well. Um. <laughs> okay, i got to put this down for one second. So we're going to start with some whipped cream this morning, Jake you're going to, uh, this is fresh whipped cream just so you know, straight from the store nothing wrong with it here so <laughs> yeah it makes, it makes you suspicious now. no really there is nothing wrong with this cream all right so there we go have you do you at least know how we make whipped cream right like you have to beat it No. I don't okay know. here here's a fork so you're gonna to have to beat this until it turns to whipped cream. It may be a while. Okay. Do you wanna come around here? Here, you can come around. This is great. You like whipped cream, right? Okay, good. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, gotta add some powdered sugar actually we'll add that in a second. All right. Have you ever used one of these before? there we go high power all right so just hold this and then there you go here so you can just put it right here and then you hold it like there we go stick that in there hold that you got it mm-hmm. keep going jay definitely don't spill any so this actually happened to us one time we were up in the dells we were visiting we were celebrating our my niece's birthday party, and we got all excited, we went up there, we had the cake, we had the ice cream, we had the whipping cream, we had everything we needed, except for the whisk. So the only thing that we could find, keep keep going, this gonna, there we go, the only thing we could find was a slotted spatula. So we're taking turns to go through a whole family, like all the adults, <laughs> oh, oh my goodness, look at that, we're done already, Jake, can you show us how? <laughs> yeah, all right. You may have to stand up here for the whole sermon. Okay. <laughs> Look at this. This is amazing. All right, okay, you can put that down, Jake. Thank you. Round of applause for everyone here. Do you want to try a little bit? Oh, okay, yours. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now I'm hungry for cake. So, between the two, which would you rather use? Like, having started with the electric mixer, would you ever go back to using a fork or a spoon, a slotted spatula, trying to do this by hand? No. Anyone? No, thank you. <laughs> it would be ridiculous, right? I mean, what, how crazy would that be? And yet, in our spiritual lives, how often do we end up doing almost exactly the same thing, right? We set aside the supernatural uh, power that God has given us through His Holy Spirit. And we go back to doing everything by ourselves, under our own strength. Listen, from start to finish, the Christian life is empowered by God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone. You know this, right? I know this. We all know this. But there's this relentless pull that we feel constantly, right? Towards adding something more to the mix. Like, just give me something to do. Give me a list of things that I need to do. So I can feel like I'm justified. We never put it that way, right? We would never say, well, we're, I'm going to follow, I'm going I'm to embrace works of law for my salvation. Nobody would ever say that. But essentially, once our hearts start going down this track, even good habits can end up becoming a, a snare that traps our faith. And in our passage today, Paul is going to address this very Issue right, his challenge to the Galatians and to us as well is very simple having begun by the Spirit, we should persevere through the Spirit. Now, I have to admit, I, I, I sighed a little bit when I was assigned this uh passage because uh, although I've lost a lot of my accent from living here in, uh, in America, I'm British deep down at, at heart. Right and and as a general rule, we're not big fans of confrontation. Like to be mild mannered and friendly. If you've ever watched, you know, Masterpiece Theater, it's all about repressing your emotions and not saying not saying what you really think or feel. Right? It's it's our neighbors the Irish who got all the feisty genes. We're meek and mild mannered which is sadly the complete opposite of Paul, right? This is Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians! It's like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? He, <laughs> It's like, I'm speechless! Except Paul's never really speechless, right? He's got endless words to say. Now look, just to be clear, Paul is not calling them stupid. He's not calling them morons, right? He, he, he loves the Galatians. They're his brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, that's why he's writing to them. Right? That's why he's so, far, he's so worked up. You know, I think we're so far removed in time and, and space from, from Paul and, and when he's writing that we forget that he's writing to people that he actually knows. Right? They're just the Galatians for us, but, but he's writing to specific people who he knows. He, he has their faces in mind as he's writing. He knows their names. He remembers their homes where he would eat and drink and spend time with them. All we see are words on a page, but for Paul, these are actual people who he loves. And Paul says, in effect, look, given everything that I shared with you about the gospel when I was with you, and given everything I just said about the power of the gospel, that was our our sermon last week, remember, the power of the gospel. He says, given all of that, what you're about to do, or what you seemingly want to do, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. In fact, he then adds, he, he, he then says, "Well, look, who has bewitched you?" It's as if to say, "Has someone put a has someone put a spell on you?" Because honestly, I can see no other reason why you would be acting like this. Now, it's possible Paul is worried about like actual demonic influence in the lives of the Galatians. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of that going on, but it's it's just as likely Paul is using hyperbole, he's exaggerating to describe the way in which they've been they've been conned or tricked or duped by these fancy arguments. Paul's fear is that the Galatians have been so taken in that they just. They can't think straight anymore. They're all turned around in their thinking. And it would do well to to pay attention to Paul's rebuke here because I think we fall prey to the same kinds of struggles and distractions today. Consider the bewitching way in which the cares and the worries of this world can choke out the Word of God in our lives. Our fears and our anxieties can become so all-consuming that they blind us to the scriptural truths. Speaking of God's boundless love, his constant presence, his ongoing protection. Or we'll consider the, the bewitching way in which the, the pursuit of success, whether it's at work or at school or in the lives of your children or even your grandchildren. That pursuit of success can fill us with pride. It can twist our understanding of God's priorities, God's purposes for God's kingdom. And so, in some sense, Satan doesn't really need to worry about sort of getting someone to cast a spell on us. From the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed at night, you're in a constant battle hold on to truth in a world determined to crowd out the centrality of the gospel. A world set on hypnotizing you like a deer in the headlights, right? Grabbing your head and your heart, calling you from the cross of Christ to something else, anything else. But don't give in. The solution for the Galatians is the same as it is for us. Look at the rest of verse 1. Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's like, look, don't, don't you remember any of the sermons that I preached to you when I was out there? And maybe if they were being truthful, they'd be like, well, actually, I'm not sure we do, but um, how could they forget the powerful way in which Paul had proclaimed Jesus to them? How could they forget that? You know, almost every summer we go out to the New Jersey shore with Kari's family. And, and one of the weirdest things for me there is, is this constant stream of, of small planes that fly just above the beach. Like, seriously, like a couple hundred feet Above the beach, just off the edge of the shore, with these huge banners flying behind them. Have you seen these? You know, they've got these huge advertisements on them, like like you know, uh, d- uh, crab legs on Tuesdays. You know, ten bucks, all you can eat, or you know, join us at the margarita bar, or whatever it is. And it's this constant stream. They're just flying by all day long. You can't tune them out. There's no ignoring them or, or, or getting by them you cannot miss these proclamations and in some respects Paul is saying the same kind of thing he's like look I lived and I, and I taught and I preached among you I performed miracles that you saw the power of God at work how could you miss the gospel like how could you miss that when I was there with you it's all I talked about over and over and over and over again. And this is exactly what, what Pastor Michael was preaching about last week. right? It's by faith alone that we're justified, not by works. That was his message. Not faith and anything at all, right? Just faith. And that faith is not even a work either. It's, it's something we receive with open hands. Look back at that. Just... A, Up a few verses at the last verse of chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be obtained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Do you hear the crushing weight of that last verse? If righteousness could indeed be achieved through the law, then the cross is completely unnecessary. And Jesus died for nothing. It makes the entire birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, it's just irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Might as well have never happened. It means doing away with the gospel because there is no longer any good news to proclaim. Look, if righteousness can be obtained through the law, then I quit. Like, I quit. What are we doing here? That's why Paul calls the Galatians foolish. Because this is such a big deal. Justification by faith alone, it's not not like some intellectual game that we can sort of argue about in a a Sunday school class or online or something. It's of primary importance to our lives. Not just here, but for all eternity. So, Paul continues now with his argument, asking them to recall how it was that they even became Christians initially. So look at verse 2. Um, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Whoa, gone too far. Uh, Clearly, this is a rhetorical question, right? Saying, "Did, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? But this is the heart of Paul's argument in this section. If the law can't save, if the law cannot bring the Spirit, then why would you want to put yourself under the law now? Remember, Paul is speaking to Gentiles here. They never had the law to begin with. Most likely, they'd never even heard the law before Paul came. It's not like they just needed better teachers to help them sort of get across the finish line. No, the only way they came to faith in Christ was by hearing the gospel proclaimed to them by Paul the simple good news of Jesus Christ crucified. And the definitive proof of their salvation was real and true and complete reception of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Look, nobody ever received the Holy Spirit through works of the law. Nobody. Not even in the Old Testament. But in and through the ministry of Jesus, something categorically new and different has happened. The gift of the Spirit is a huge deal. The biggest deal. I mean, think about it. The third member of the Trinity... Coming to dwell within us. Right? That, that's mind boggling. Kids, if you're like, I don't understand any of that, I don't really understand how that works either. Like, it's incompre- almost incomprehensible. Like, I, I just, how that all happens, I don't know. But that's what he's talking about. And it brings transformation when it happens. Look, I don't know about you, but my life changed completely when the Holy Spirit came into my life at conversion. Before Jesus, I used to swear all the time. Like, maybe you don't like to hear that. I'm a pastor now, and I'm British, mild-mannered, whatever. but, But before I was a Christian, I swore all the time. Like, every other word seemed like it was a swear word. But the day I put my faith in Jesus Christ, it just stopped. It was like God took those words and just erased them from my memory banks. It was astonishing. It was a dramatic work of the Holy Spirit cleansing me and renewing me. It's exactly what Pastor Mark read just before our service from Ezekiel 36. God took my old heart of stone and he gave me a new heart. Flesh, and he put his spirit within me. And this was not through works of law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul's saying, Look, something similar to that happened to, to the Galatians as well. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit when they were born again, they were saved by his powerful work in their life. They had their old hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh and they experienced the powerful and transformative work of the Spirit in their lives as a result. What more proof could they ever need that works of law are powerless to bring about salvation or change? Why in the world would the Galatians go back to thinking they could earn God's favor by doing works of the law? Look, we don't get more of the Spirit by sort of being better or holier Christians. The Spirit isn't a reward that you get for finishing all seven years of, of, of BSF, you know, Bible study fellowships, like Bible study cycle. Right? You, the Spirit isn't a, a reward you get for feeding every homeless person you meet or attending every event in Bible study offered by the church. The Spirit comes as a gracious gift from God at the moment of conversion. And whether He comes in a a dramatic and powerful way or in a quiet way, it's something that you grew up with at home. His presence is assured by the promises of Scripture and the authority of God's Word. But... Paul now shifts gears a little bit because much of the conversation up to this point has been focused on the moment of conversion. But of course, for the Christians, uh, uh, for the Galatians, uh, and for us also, life is a, 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 a lifetime of following Jesus. Right? And how are we supposed to keep loving and serving and living for Jesus even after salvation? So, listen to what Paul says. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, conversion, are you now going to try and continue your life as a Christian through the flesh? We've had a lot of snow so far this year. One of the Not the snowiest, but one of the snowiest winters here in Chicago. I don't know if any of you are tired of of shoveling yet. I know I am. But now imagine that you had... There we go. Now we get to look. Now, imagine you had one of these. Right? This is a 34-inch wide, 420cc, 14-horsepower engine, the ability to throw snow 50 feet all the way into your neighbor's yard. It's fantastic. It does cost $1,500. But, you know, who can put a price on these things? So imagine you get this. Like, your, wife buy, or your, your, your husband or wife buys it for you a, a, as a Christmas present. Here you go, honey. So the first day the snow comes, you open your garage, and, and you fire it up, and you just, you're done with your driveway in like 10 minutes. Right? It's awesome. And then the next time it snows, same thing. You go out there, your snow's going everywhere, you're laughing at your neighbors. This is great. You feel so good about yourself. But then a new guy moves in, next door. And one day he sees you and he's like, hey, uh, just so you know, real men, they use one of these, okay? Uh, Because if you're not sweating, you're not really working, all right? And every day, it's the same message. It's like, yeah, I mean, I know you got that, but really, you should be using this. Until one day, and it's just incessant, until one day you find yourself out there, and this is you, working at the snow, one tiny shovel at a time. And the whole time, the snowblower is just sitting there in your garage. The door's open, everyone can see it. It's just sitting there, gathering dust. Now what would you think if you saw me doing that? Huge awesome snowblower in the garage and I'm out there shoveling like this guy. Right? Oh foolish neighbor! Having bought such an amazing snowblower why would you persist in doing all the hard work by yourself? What are you thinking? Can you at least have me borrow the snowblower? (laughs) Like what should I do? Put this stupid thing down and go fire up the snowblower and do it the way it was supposed to be done. And Paul's trying to make a similar point here with the Galatians. He's like, look, having experienced all the life-giving work of the Spirit in their lives at conversion, how could it ever make sense to now continue in their faith under their own strengths? What possible impact could circumcision have at this point? What exactly would following the food laws do that the Holy Spirit himself was not already doing in their lives? And the same is true for us today. Having begun by faith, we should continue under the power of the Holy Spirit. But we don't do that. Instead, we struggle with thinking, surely there must be something more we should be doing. Otherwise, it all just sounds too too easy, too lackadaisical, too subjective, too prone to abuse. I mean, grace can't be this simple, right? There must be something more that we should be doing. Reflecting on this question, a friend of mine, we were talking about this, and he said... He said, look, it's always the same message with Christianity. It's free to get in, but then you pay the rest of your life. Meaning, from his perspective, the gospel is good news for salvation, but now... Now it's a matter of working like crazy to be a good Christian. So you've got to serve more, you've got to give more, you've got to sacrifice more, you've got to spend more time doing more Christian stuff, you've got to read your Bible more, you've got to pray more, you've got to evangelize more, you've got to serve more, and on and on and on. And of course, on the one hand, these are all core disciplines in the Christian life. They're all ways that we grow in our faith and we experience God. I encourage them. Michael encourages them. And there are likewise dozens of clear ethical commands in Scripture that we're called to obey. And we're going to talk about these when we get to Galatians 5. But they can also become empty works that we find ourselves doing simply in an effort to please God or to please others. We begin with the Spirit, but then somewhere along the way, we shift to trying to finish the race under our own strengths. If we can be honest here for a moment, I think my fear is there's a lot of kind of uh, grin and bear it in the church today. Good, honest, well-intentioned Christians struggling along under the weight of enormous... Spiritual pressure, feeling constant spiritual exhaustion. So, my friend who I mentioned earlier, he's noticed this pattern in his life, and maybe you can relate to this. Because when his willpower fails him in some area of temptation, not even necessarily something huge, the result is usually this keen awareness of his own weakness and failure, which then makes him depressed, which in turn makes him feel there is no way that God is going to use him or work through him now. And then, instead of this being an opportunity to be reminded of the gospel and the fact that we are all powerless to keep the law. And that for all our neat and tidy appearances, we are all sinners desperately in need of grace. Instead of that, this this moment of failure becomes a time to be reminded of the fact that he has to work harder now at resisting sin and harder at denying the flesh. It's a time to be reminded he has to work harder at being a better Christian so that maybe then God will be pleased with him and accept him and bless him. He's out there shoveling the snow by hand while the snowblower sits unused in his garage. I think this is not all that unusual in Christian circles. He's not some strange anomaly out there on the fringes. He reads his Bible. He prays. He worships a church. He's a sharp guy. He's a great leader. But he's in a daily battle to shed that, 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 that pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps mentality that was ingrained in him as a kid. Can any of you relate to this? You're talking about this problem in our churches. The, the author, Jerry Bridges, asks the following probing question. He said... In one of his books, "Are you experiencing both the peace of God that comes with salvation and the joy of God that comes by living in grace every day?" If not, you may not be saved by grace. I mean you may be saved by grace, but you are living by works you're not experiencing the peace of God and the joy of God that comes by living by grace each day, you may be saved by grace, but you may find that you're actually living day to day by works. So how do we overcome this tendency towards self-righteousness? How do we overcome the pull towards a a do-more, try-harder kind of Christianity? And near the uh, very end of his life, John Newton is recorded as having said, "My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things: that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior." When it came down to it, that was all the theology that he needed. This is Paul says the same thing, right in First Timothy. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now we may not be slip-sliding our way into some horrendous, hedonistic, egregious sin and debauchery. But that's not the point, okay? (laughs) You don't get extra brownie points with God for weeping and wailing about how horrible a person you are and what a a wicked sinner and and, and you deserve nothing good in life. Newton and, and the Apostle Paul, they're not trying to outdo each other no, I'm the worst. No, no, really, I'm the worst. No, you don't understand. I'm the far worse sinner. That's just a different form of works righteousness. Right? Trying to sort of earn God's favor through emphasizing what a bad person you are. Both John Newton and the Apostle Paul are focused on something else here. God's grace is sweetest, for those who recognize their deep neediness. His grace is sweetest for those who recognize their neediness. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, our position before God is secure. In Christ, you have all received the a The Pastor Michael was talking about last week. In Christ, you are all adopted as sons and daughters. That's a done deal. But functionally, day to day, we still battle with sin and temptation and frustration and anger and doubt and exhaustion and everything else, just like my friend I was telling you about. But the way out of that cycle of do more, try harder is to fix our eyes on Christ crucified, to recognize our neediness, to stop relying on our own self-sufficiency and trust in Christ's all-sufficient power. There was a second reading this morning. I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, that's, that's very pious christian language. Trust in Christ's all-sufficient power. Look on Christ crucified. What does that all mean? What it means is that when you feel overwhelmed with your sin, however big or small it is, Or when you just maybe feel depressed about your lackluster faith. Instead of fixing your eyes on your failure, fixing your eyes on yourself, it means fixing your eyes on Jesus. And what help does that provide? Well, his death was sufficient to pay for every single sin. Whatever it is, all those debts have already been paid for. Yeah, you messed up. We're not going to cover that up or pretend it didn't happen. But your slate has already been wiped clean. And you know what? You're right. You don't deserve it. In those moments, you're like, I don't deserve any of this. Yes, correct. You don't. That's the point. What you deserve is for God to turn His back on you. But Jesus was forsaken so that you would no longer have to experience that separation. And because Jesus did that for you, you can now be set free from guilt and shame to live with joy and peace instead. Or when you feel that crushing weight of Christian duty, you can look to the cross and be reminded that all the work that could ever possibly need to be done has already been accomplished by Jesus on your behalf. And the cross, the cross is proof of that. And when I say, look to the cross... Let's boil that down. He said, I'm thinking of of communion, which we're going to celebrate in a few minutes. When we literally remember Christ's death, I'm thinking of when we sing worship songs in in the car or at home with our families or or here at church or in, in other studies. I'm thinking of time spent in prayer meditating on Jesus. I'm thinking of time spent reading the Bible and seeing the dozens of ways that it speaks of God's gracious provision for us. I'm thinking of the encouragement that we get from brothers and sisters in Christ whom God has placed in our lives to remind us of these truths that Christ came to save sinners. We can speak these truths into each other's lives. Right? We can help drag our attention off ourselves and onto Jesus. You know, I mentioned earlier how sometimes spiritual disciplines can become a burden in our lives, like a sort of Christian version of works of law. But this only happens when you look at them as jobs that have to be accomplished, right? Or, or tasks that, that God has for you to do, like you've got this big to-do list every morning, hoops you have to jump through to earn God's approval, or like, like doing chores for your parents, But prayer and Bible reading and giving and serving and everything else, these are all meant by God for your blessing. They're all meant by God for your nourishment. They're food and drink for your soul. Look, God doesn't need your prayers. You need your prayers. God doesn't need you to read his word. You need to read his word. These disciplines are for your benefit, not his. They're gifts. They're given to strengthen and encourage. But only when you see them for what they are, ways to engage with God, your king, your sovereign leader. It's not the action so much, it's the attitude, right? The posture of your heart behind the action that matters. That's why Paul ends this section by emphasizing again the important role of faith in our lives. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. He says here, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The supply of spiritual power in our lives is ongoing. It's essentially without end. Right? It's a well that will never run dry. Never. I don't know what this looked like for the Galatians. Paul doesn't tell us, but he's clear there was an ongoing pattern of spiritual provision. And it came not by obeying the law, but through faith, through trust in Jesus The same kind of trusting faith that Abraham exhibited before he was circumcised. Long before the law was ever given to Moses. The same kind of trusting faith we're called to exhibit today. And thank goodness for the ongoing spiritual provision of God's power in our lives. Because I don't know about you, but I need it. I am very much a work in progress you know last summer we were at a summer camp out in michigan and it was right on a on a big lake and one day we took a boat ride out on the lake it was just our family and this woman uh, driving the boat and we got going we got a little ways out there and all of a sudden the the engine started making uh, the motor really weird noise and it got to the point where we're all kind of looking at each other like is it really supposed to be sounding like that and eventually the, the lady driving the boat, she stops and we're just there rocking in the water and she's trying different things and then she radios for help and they're on the radio back and forth like, do we send a rescue boat or can they make it back and back and forth, back and forth and finally we're like, you know what, let's I think we're close enough to shore we can probably get back and if not, then I can send a boat. So we, we stumble our way slowly back to shore, And obviously we, we made it there, going half speed with this really disturbing sound coming from the engine compartment the whole time. And here's the point. Spiritually, I think I'm, I'm a lot like that boat. My life is not as, as cut and dry as, as, as using the fork and doing it all by myself, or using the mixer and having it all power, or using the snowblower or using the shovel. My life's more like that boat. Right? I started out with a perfectly good engine. I mean, it's not like I started out with a, a good engine and, and then somewhere along the way decided to give up and, and use oars instead. It's more like sometimes I'm just operating at half speed. right? Like I'm, I'm kind of, sort of relying on the Holy Spirit and kind of, sort of relying on my own strength And most of the time, I don't even know what I'm doing wrong. Right? All I know is that the water is choppy, there's a storm threatening on the horizon, and I'm hoping I can complete the journey and make it safely home before this craft all falls to pieces. And Paul's encouragement to the Galatians extends to you and me as well. God is constantly... Providing power through the Holy Spirit. His resources, they never run dry. His patience never runs out. He will see us safely home to shore. Not because we've been able to hold it all together in our own strength, but because He has. Not because our faith is so strong, but because His promises are so secure. Trust in the Lord, because the work that He has begun in you, He will carry on to completion in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for this gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, our lives are often like that boat, stumbling along, making weird noises, sometimes under our own strength, sometimes leaning on yours. But we wonder if we have enough faith. It says more we should be doing. And Lord, in those moments, I pray that through your Spirit, you would direct our eyes to the cross, that you would remind us. That everything that we need is found in you. That you would empower us to live for you. And to bring glory to your name in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.